Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha. And we're using this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, as our source text for this program. This is a seven-month program where on Sundays we talk each week chapter by chapter. Today we're in chapter five, and we've previously gone through other chapters in the book. But if you're joining us for the first time, that's completely fine because right now we're starting to enter into the heart of the book, which is really going to help you to really understand this full path to enlightenment because today we're discussing the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment, so you're going to get a really wide perspective and even some quite a bit of detail about what this path to enlightenment is and how to actually progress on this path. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you've been joining us regularly or this is your first time, welcome to our classes. As I mentioned on Sunday, we discuss chapter by chapter, and then on Wednesday, we do our group meditation together, where I've done a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation, a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation, and this week, we're starting a four-part series on Buddhist chanting. And then after that, we'll just rotate between breathing mindfulness meditation and loving-kindness meditation. The topic today is the Eightfold Path. And if you've read this prior to class, you have seen what was written in the book. And if you don't have access to this book yet, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com. And from there, you'll see a link for free books. And you'll be able to download this book for free. You can take that file and go print it if you'd like a printed version. Or you can order a copy on Amazon, which is already printed for you. Because reading before and or after class will really help you because what we cover in the class, oftentimes I'm extracting out of the book certain important points to be sure that students have the opportunity to learn those in person and then ask any clarifying questions on that content. But there are certain things in the book that I don't have time to actually discuss in our class sessions here online. But also there's certain things that I discuss online that aren't actually in the book. So between the two of reading and attending classes, you'll be able to gradually progress in your learning to understand this path to enlightenment that the Buddha shared. And if at any point that you're not able to make it to class, these classes are all recorded on Facebook, YouTube, in our podcast. You can access these at any point during the week and ensure that you're continuing to learn if you can't necessarily make the live class. So once again, I'd like to welcome you and transition over to what it is that I was going to share with you today regarding the Eightfold Path. In order to talk about the Eightfold Path, it's important to first discuss the natural law of gamma. 
Chapter 9 in this book is devoted to the natural law of gamma. So we'll get really in depth with it there in chapter 9. But here I'd like to be sure that students who are learning have at least a basic understanding of the natural law of gamma because it's the Buddhist teachings that are actually explaining this natural law of gamma to us. The natural law of gamma is one of the primary natural laws that the Buddha is explaining in his teachings. I describe the Buddhist teachings as the natural laws of existence. He's explaining those through his teachings, these natural laws that exist in the world. The primary natural law that he's discussing is the natural law of gamma. And it's the Eightfold Path where you really start pulling back the covers and starting to be able to see what it is that he's actually discussing and what he's talking about. Because the Eightfold Path is the central core teaching of the Buddha with other teachings plugging into this Eightfold Path. And the more you understand this natural law of gamma, you awaken to this wisdom and then you're able to make wiser and wiser decisions in the world having knowledge and wisdom of this natural law. Because without understanding of this natural law, a unenlightened, unawakened being is going to really struggle and have difficulties because there's a lack of wisdom or what we call ignorance or the unknowing of true reality about this natural law. And when we don't understand what we don't understand in the unenlightened state, then we make decisions that we think are beneficial or we think that are wholesome or we think might turn out well for us. But when we make those decisions, then something comes back to us that we weren't expecting or we weren't thinking that was going to occur. And then we really struggle to see what it is that we're doing or what decisions are we making that are causing these complications in our life. And we often struggle making these decisions in life. And we had this same exact thing occur to us as we were growing up in other parts of our life with other natural laws. With the natural law of gravity, when we were two years old or three years old, we really struggled to understand this natural law. We didn't even know that it existed when we were two years old, three years old, six years old, and what have you. But this natural law of gravity affected us, whether we are aware of it or not. And when we walked down the street or we were maybe even just an infant or a toddler and we stood up, we would fall down, we would hurt ourselves, we would cry, we would struggle, we would put our toys in a certain place and they would fall down and they would break and we would be upset or we would knock over glasses of water or we would knock over our milk as a child and we would cry and we would be upset because we didn't understand this natural law of gravity. We would ride our bicycle and fall off and end up banging up our knee or our elbows or what have you. And because our lack of understanding, our lack of wisdom, our unknowing of true reality of this natural law of gravity, we really struggled in the world. But then slowly but surely, we started learning about this natural law of gravity. Our mind awakened to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. And as we did, then we started being able to make wiser and wiser choices. We started tying our shoes extra tight. We started looking at the surface of the sidewalk as we walked. We kind of learned to be stable on our feet as we walked and we ran and we jumped and we hopped. We learned how to balance ourselves on a bicycle and other things. And we started to exist in the world more peacefully because now we can travel anywhere and anywhere that we'd like in the world because we now have this wisdom of the natural law of gravity. 
Well, the same thing needs to occur with this natural law of gamma and all the other natural laws that the Buddha discusses. Because as long as we lack the wisdom of these natural laws, we're going to struggle. We're going to make unwise decisions. And that's where the mind gets shaken up in experiencing sadness and sorrow and anger and frustration. Because moving the mind to this enlightened mental state, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing feelings like anger or sadness or frustration or irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, shyness, loneliness, jealousy, resentment, all of these discontent feelings and others are completely eliminated from the mind. And that comes from gaining the wisdom of this natural law of gamma and these other natural laws of existence so that then you can train your mind to now through understanding these natural laws you can now make wiser decisions in the world about how you do things and how you navigate the world but in order to accomplish this you need to learn the teachings you need to reflect on them and you need to practice them you don't believe the Buddhist teachings. Belief isn't going to help you awaken to the wisdom that the Buddha shared about these natural laws. Because with belief, you don't know whether it's true or false. And if you just believe things, then you can easily have the mind shaken up because you don't know what's true or false. You haven't gained any wisdom. But when you learn in a class like this, or when you learn with books and other resources that I share, you can intellectually understand the teachings then you can reflect on those independently verifying the teachings that they're true. And then you can start practicing the teachings, making wiser and wiser decisions about things that you do in life, including training your own mind. And now as you train in these teachings and start practicing them deeper and deeper, then the mind will move to this enlightened mental state gradually, slowly but surely. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's a gradual progression to enlightenment where the mind diminishes these discontent feelings slowly but surely. And that starts with the intellectual learning. And then when you do that intellectual learning like today, you reflect on those teachings, you independently verify them, which I'm going to help you start doing today. And then I will help you to understand how to move these teachings into practice so that now as you're practicing them, you can see the truth for yourself more and more that these teachings are indeed working to improve the condition of the mind. So this natural law of gamma, you can see it for yourself because you've been affected by this without you necessarily knowing it. It's not punishment and rewards. A lot of times people think of the natural law of gamma as you're getting punished or you're getting rewarded, but that's not actually what it is. It's just cause and effect or action and result. When we have certain decisions that we make, there's a certain effect or there's a certain result based on the decisions that we make. The results of our decisions is what is our gamma. If we say, oh, that's wholesome gamma, that's because of the results of our decisions. Or if we experience unwholesome gamma, that's the results of our decisions. Because it's our life, it's our decisions, it's our results. As we experience various things in life, everything that we experience is a result of our decisions. It's just cause and effect or action and result. So this series of cause and effect or this series of decisions that have led to some result, this is our gamma. So just the fact that you can hear me right now and you understand the language that I'm speaking, 
That is a result of your decisions. At some point in your life, you wouldn't understand somebody speaking in this English language, whether it was when you were a young baby or a young child, or maybe later in life, if you have English as your second language, at some point, you had to make a decision to actively learn the English language. And you made many, 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 many decisions, reading books, going to classes, learning the script, doing various things and various activities in order to get to the point where you can actually understand the English language and learn from it. It's not a reward that that's happened for you. Nobody rewarded you for that. That was a result of your decisions. So being able to listen and understand what I'm saying is a result of your decisions. It was cause and effect because you chose to pick up a book regularly, because you chose to go to classes regularly, because you chose to learn from a teacher, you now understand the English language. That is wholesome gamma. You've made certain decisions that led to some result. <clears throat> so all of the Buddha's teachings, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the Buddha's teachings are based on understanding that everything we experience is from our own decisions. And when you understand this, Everything else that the Buddha has to share with you is built upon this understanding <clears throat> that everything that you experience is based on your decisions. <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is a little scratchy. Let's see if that helped. <clears throat> Perhaps. All right. So let me just pause here for a moment and see if there's any questions on this natural law of karma, just in the basic way that I've explained it so far. Because what I'm going to share with you after this is based on understanding this, and I would just like to see if anybody has any questions before we move on. The way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, and our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hello, teacher. Uh, as for the law of gamma, uh, one can see two persons. Both of them maybe are doing unwholesome things. Let's say both are smoking cigarettes, are drinking alcohol, but the results are different for these two uh, persons. Uh, how can we understand this through uh, the law of karma? Yeah, so there's not an exact cause and there's not an exact effect that's going to be the same for every single person. This is the universal truth of impermanence, that you can't have exactly the same result. So if two people end up smoking and both of those people are smoking for 10 years, one person might develop cancer and another person doesn't. It's just based on the health of the body and other decisions that they make. It's not just singular. It's not you made this one decision, so everybody who makes this one decision is going to absolutely get this one result. Everybody that is making certain decisions in their life, there's more than just one decision that they're making. They're not making these decisions in isolation. So there's not one permanent fixed result based on every single decision that we make. One of the teachings that the Buddha explains is he, of course, in his teachings, he helps us to generally understand this natural law of gamma so that we can as best as possible, deeply understand it and make wise decisions in our life. But one of the things that he says is to try to understand the exact, exact result of karma, it would drive you to madness and frustration if you tried to do that. So because of the universal truth of impermanence, 
there's not going to be the exact same result for every single person and every single decision that they make. Well, thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So let's move on and start looking at the Eightfold Path because it's the Eightfold Path that is the path to enlightenment. And if you were in our class last week or if you listened to the replay from last week, we discussed the Four Noble Truths. And I'm going to kind of recap some of that today, but we went into a lot of detail with the Four Noble Truths last week. And that last Noble Truth, the Buddha is pointing to the Eightfold Path and saying, that's the way to eliminate discontentedness. That's the way to get to enlightenment is to practice the Eightfold Path. And in that Four Noble Truths, he explains the problem of discontentedness in the mind. He explains the cause of it. He explains the elimination. And he explains the path forward is the Eightfold Path. That's what's going to completely eliminate discontentedness. That plugs into the Eightfold Path as right view. Having the right view is essentially understanding that you are causing all your own discontentedness. And because of that, you can actually eliminate it. Oftentimes in the unenlightened state, we blame other people for our anger and our frustration, our irritation, and all these other discontent feelings. But what we learned in the Four Noble Truths last week is that your own mind is causing it to be discontent because of craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. So we're going to review that today as we progress in learning all the other steps. But here, I would just like to show you the Eightfold Path as it's comprised of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are the steps that we're going to be discussing today. And these are organized into three subsections of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. It's in understanding each one of these steps that you practice them all that you gradually move the mind to the enlightened mental state. You can think of these eight steps as almost like little dials that you're dialing in closer and closer. So if you've learned the Eightfold Path in other classes with me, or you've read books or studied with other teachers a bit about the Eightfold Path, you should be learning it more than just one time. You can't just learn it once and then be perfecting it right after that. You need to gradually learn it and dial in each one of these steps and doing them all at the same time. The way that I think about the Eightfold Path is the Buddha is providing this ceiling and saying, this is how to train the mind to get to enlightenment. And as an individual practitioner, you're gradually working up to that ceiling. But as you're working up to that ceiling, it's not a linear progression. You're going to be actually moving up to that and you're going to take a couple steps back. You're going to be moving up to that, taking some steps back, moving up to that. But your progression is moving forward. But each day, each week, each month, you're gradually working closer and closer to the ceiling of what the Buddha describes in the Eightfold Path. The very first thing that he talks about in the Eightfold Path is right view. And I use the words of the Buddha in order to help you to see with 100% certainty what the Buddha was actually teaching. Because remember, you shouldn't believe what I teach. You shouldn't believe what the Buddha teaches. You shouldn't believe these words. But there needs to be some basis of understanding that you use the words of the Buddha to understand what it is that he taught. Then when you do that intellectual learning, you start reflecting on it. You start practicing it and seeing the truth for yourself. So in the Eightfold Path, this layer of learning that the Buddha shares in this central core teaching, he shares, in what monks is right view? 
It is, monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, in the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. So here in the Eightfold Path, he's providing this central core teaching, and then he's kind of pointing the finger towards other teachings. So here he's pointing the finger towards the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is quite a thorough teaching, but here underneath of this line, I've put just the beginning part of the Four Noble Truths so that you can see that he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths, and then I'm going to explain to you what the Four Noble Truths are. So here in the beginning of the Four Noble Truths, he says, monks, there are these Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. So here at the very beginning of the Four Noble Truths, you can see the connection between the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, but then he goes on here and explains the Four Noble Truths fully for you. And what I did in the book is in chapter four, I put the Buddha's words of what the Four Noble Truths are. But then a very rare situation is I actually summarize the Four Noble Truths in a way that can help you get up and running with them rather readily because the teachings of the Buddha related to the Four Noble Truths are fairly detailed and you would need to have some background understanding to be able to understand the Four Noble Truths. So as you progress in your learning, you will need to understand the Four Noble Truths as the Buddha teaches them. But just to get you started in establishing right view, I'm going to help you to understand right view in a way that will allow you to start readily understanding it and start practicing it and seeing the results. In order to understand the Four Noble Truths, you need to first understand the three universal truths. These are building blocks to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. The first one is the universal truth of impermanence. This is where the Buddha shares that all conditioned objects arise they change and they fade away. Essentially what he's saying is all these objects around us and all the various things that we experience in terms of ideas and feelings in the mind, all these things are impermanent. They're not permanent or fixed. So when you understand that things are impermanent and that's a universal truth, you understand that intellectually, but now you start looking around the world as you reflect on this and start trying to determine the truth for yourself. Because if this is a universal truth, that all these material objects and conditioned objects are essentially impermanent, you should be able to look around the world and see the truth for yourself. So you look at this physical body that you inhabit now. Ask yourself, is this body permanent? Has it been exactly the same your entire life? And the answer is no, of course. You know, the body's been constantly growing. You have had different teeth come in and out of the mouth. You've had your hair grow and you've had to cut it and then it grows some more and you cut it and it grows some more. The texture and color of your hair changes. You have different wrinkles and different things appear on your skin, different colorations on your skin, different growths on the skin. This physical body is constantly changing because it is impermanent. You also look at things like your job or your income or your relationships. Are these things permanent? Have you had the exact same job, the exact same income, or the exact same friends and relationships in your life, your entire life? 
or have these things been constantly changing? Well, of course, they've been constantly changing because of the universal truth of impermanence. So this is the first universal truth that you need to understand in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. The second universal truth is the universal truth of discontentedness. This is where the Buddha explains what the unenlightened mind experiences. The unenlightened mind experiences pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, some excited condition where the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition. You get a new job, so you get excited and thrilled, or you get a new pair of shoes. Oh, I'm so excited, I'm thrilled. Or you get a new friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You get so excited, right? This is a pleasant feeling based on a condition of something occurring in your life. But then there's these painful feelings of sadness or anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and others like this. And then there's neither painful nor pleasant. For me, I put boredom and loneliness in there, although some people say that's quite painful for them. So you could put that in the painful category if you like. But shyness is kind of neither painful nor pleasant. It's not painful to be shy. It's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. It's kind of uncomfortable or dissatisfying. If somebody came and sat next to you closely on a bus and their body was touching your body, it's not painful. It's not pleasant. You might just experience some kind of uncomfortableness, some dissatisfaction. That's what neither painful nor pleasant is. And this is what the unenlightened mind is going to experience. It's going to experience certain pleasant feelings and certain conditions that have created those pleasant feelings. And then after a period of time, they're going to fade away because they're temporary. They're impermanent. Then the mind's going to experience these painful feelings of anger and frustration, irritation in others. And then at some point, it's going to experience these neither painful nor pleasant feelings. And this is the unenlightened mind just going up and down and up and down and up and down. And these are conditioned feelings. The mind is conditioned on some experience. And we're going to explain that in the Four Noble Truths for you more. Some people refer to this universal truth as suffering. I don't use that word because it only explains the painful feelings. When you're happy or excited or thrilled, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or when you were shy, you wouldn't say that you were suffering. Or if that stranger came and sat close to you on the bus, you wouldn't say you were suffering when their body was touching your body. So if we use the word suffering, it doesn't really capture what the Buddha was describing when he used the word dukkha. He described it as these three feelings. This word dukkha is often translated from Pali into English as suffering. But I use discontent, discontented, or discontentedness because he describes it as a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant. So if we use suffering, we're only explaining 33% of what the Buddha shared. And that means we're missing 66% of his teachings. In order to get to enlightenment, you need to understand his teachings fully. So if you're missing 66% of what he's sharing, that's a lot to miss. And you, you're not going to really be able to experience enlightenment missing that much of his teachings. So you'll hear me use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness to refer to this uncalm, unsteady mind that is shaken up due to these pleasant feelings, these painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant. 
Then there's this universal truth of non-self, which doesn't necessarily help us to understand the Four Noble Truths, but I will explain it to you in kind of a brief introduction, just so that when we discuss it later in chapter 16, you'll understand it. The universal truth of non-self, the Buddha is basically explaining that this physical body in this mind is not you. It's not who you are as a person. That this self-image, whether you wear makeup or jewelry or wear certain clothing or you put on scents on the body, all of this that we do in order to project a certain self-image in the world, he says, this isn't you. This isn't who you are as a person. And then this mind and the self-identity, if you think that I am an American or I am a Buddhist teacher or I am a food server or I am a taxi driver or any of this I am, I am, the Buddha is saying all that self-identity in the mind, that's not who you are as a person because all of these things are changing. The self-image is changing and the self-identity is changing because of the universal truth of impermanence. And you can see this and independently verify it for yourself that if I had my arm amputated and it was no longer here, am I less of a person because of having less of a physical body? And the answer is no, you're still you know, whoever you are, you're still existing in the world. You're still making decisions. You're not less of a person just because there's less of a physical body. So this universal truth of non-self is helping you to understand that there is no permanent self, that you're not this self-image and you're not this self-identity. Because as long as the mind holds on to thinking that this physical body or this mind is who you are as a person, when you hear agreeable things about the self-image or your self-identity, you're going to experience these pleasant feelings. But it's only a matter of time because of impermanence that somebody's going to say something negative or disagreeable about the self-image or the self-identity. And if you allow the mind to cling to this self-image and self-identity, when you hear this disagreeable speech, about the self-image or self-identity, now the mind's going to experience those painful feelings. So the universal truth of non-self is the solution to what we call the fetter of personal existence view. If you learned in the class where I taught the 10 fetters, the universal truth of non-self is the solution to help you eliminate the pollution in the mind or the taint or the defilement of personal existence view. So the unenlightened mind falsely believes, has this false perception or this misunderstanding that this physical body in this mind is you and who you are as a person. And part of the Buddhist teachings is helping you to eliminate that from the mind so that you no longer view this physical body or mind as being who you are as a person. Now these are building blocks to help us understand the Four Noble Truths as is this next thing that I would like to share with you, which is the definition of what a craving desire attachment is. We also call this expectations, wants, holding, grasping, or clinging. These words are used in common language, and you've probably been using these in different times for different reasons, but it's important in order to understand the Buddhist teachings that you understand how these words are used in Buddhist teachings. So when I say the word craving desire attachment, what I'm referring to is this mental longing with a strong eagerness. 
the mind longing or yearning for something, chasing after the objects of its affection, or pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. If you've ever seen something that you really wanted, maybe on TV or an advertisement, maybe a new pair of shoes or something like that, and your mind was just like, oh, I've got to have those new shoes. I've just got to hurry up and get to the store and get those new shoes. That's a craving desire attachment. The mind is pulling towards the objects of its affection. There's this mental longing or yearning. Or if you've ever applied for a job and you were just yearning and longing and hoping with so much energy that you get this job, that's a craving desire attachment. We also have these expectations or these wants, certain things that we want in the world. And we have this object of our affection or this objects of our desires that the mind is chasing after. And it thinks if it acquires this thing that it's going to fulfill it. And this is a craving, desire, attachment, or expectations, wants, holding, or grasping, or clinging. And this helps you to understand the Four Noble Truths the way that I explain them, because the Buddha explains that in the First Noble Truth that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience those pleasant feelings where the mind gets this happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, that means that your mind is unenlightened because it's basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And that's what's arising, those pleasant feelings. And then if you experience those painful feelings of anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, or any of those other painful feelings, then you know your mind is unenlightened. And same thing if you experience boredom, loneliness, shyness, uncomfortableness, displeasure, dissatisfaction, then you know your mind is unenlightened. But the goal is for you to learn and practice so that you can then gain this wisdom of these natural laws so that now you can train your mind and move the mind to the enlightened mental state. You haven't done anything wrong. Every human being who is born is unenlightened. But now with this wisdom of the Buddha, you can move your mind to the enlightened mental state. But in order to do that, you have to understand the cause. What is causing this discontentedness? And that's where the second noble truth comes in. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. I'm going to explain this a few times, and I'm going to give you some examples so that you can see it starting to independently verify it. So discontentedness is caused. So those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant are caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, our own mental longing with a strong eagerness, when the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection, when it's pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. That's what's causing the mind to be discontent. Because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So let me give you some examples. If you've ever had a relationship like a boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband and wife, and you guys were together, when you first got together, you experience these pleasant feelings. Oh, wow, it feels so great. Somebody is interested in me. Somebody likes me. Somebody would like to spend time with me. Somebody listens to me. We can have conversations. This arose these pleasant feelings because you had this 
craving or this yearning or this longing to be in this relationship. And that's what arose those pleasant feelings. But then over time, you guys grew apart and eventually the relationship ended. And when the relationship ended and you guys split, now the mind was sad or angry or frustrated. You might even experience loneliness or boredom during that period of time. It's not the other person who caused this. It's actually the mind itself, that craving, that yearning, that longing, that craving for permanence. Because the mind thought this relationship was permanent. And then when the relationship ended and you separated, now because the mind lacks the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence, it doesn't understand that. It hasn't been trained to understand this universal truth of impermanence. Now, because of that craving being in there, that yearning, that longing, that wanting permanence, when you guys separated, the mind then experienced painful feelings because it's experiencing this impermanence. It doesn't like this change. So one of the ways to say this is the way that I have it written here is the second noble truth is that the mind wants everything to be permanent. It craves, it yearns, it longs, it wants everything to be permanent. Another way to say that is the unenlightened mind does not like impermanence. It does not like change. When things start to change and shift in your life, that's when discontentedness of painful feelings start to arise in the mind. But then when you have these mental longings and you're chasing after the objects of your affection, if you get what you want, you get those pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation but they're just temporary because they're based on some condition. And this condition is temporary. So when that condition changes, the mind moves from these pleasant feelings to these painful feelings of sadness and anger, frustration and others. So the mind is causing itself to be discontent. Understanding right view is to understand the view that you are causing your own discontentedness. In the unenlightened state, we typically blame other people for our discontentedness. We say that you are making me angry or you are annoying me. But in reality, it's the mind causing itself to be angry. It's the mind causing itself to be annoyed because of the craving desire attachment. And when you understand that and you accept responsibility for the mind causing itself to be discontent, then you can start to focus on the elimination of discontentedness, which is the third noble truth. The elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving desires attachments. So if you can train the mind to understand this universal truth of impermanence and you can eliminate the craving desire attachments where the mind isn't chasing after the objects of its affection, where it doesn't have this yearning and longing, uh, wanting certain things to be a certain way all the time, when you can train the mind to no longer do that, and reside in the middle or practice the middle way as the Buddha described, then you can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently because the mind is no longer chasing after the objects of his affection. When it gets what it wants, it gets pleasant feelings. When it doesn't get what it wants, it gets these painful feelings. Essentially what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's, it's like a three-year-old child throwing a temper tantrum. If it gets what it wants, it gets these pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get what it wants, it gets these painful feelings. And this is how a person who's having a temper tantrum, if you give them what they want, they're going to be pleased and they're going to be friendly and polite and kind. But if you don't give them what they want, they're going to be angry and hostile and bitter. 
this is what the unenlightened mind is doing because of the craving desire attachment, the mental longing for something. So you're going to hear in today's discussion about the Eightfold Path, about what we do in order to train the mind to move to this enlightened mental state. Two of the things that I discussed last week is breathing mindfulness meditation and the practice of generosity is training the mind to let go. Because the problem with the unenlightened mind is it's holding on. It wants the objects of its affection. It's clinging. It's holding on. It's yearning for the objects of its affection. So the way that the Buddha taught breathing mindfulness meditation, where you're training the mind to let go and come back to the breath, this is training the mind to reside in the middle, where it's no longer chasing the objects of its affection, but instead it's pursuing things as a goal or an objective or an interest. And then the practice of generosity, where you're giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources, that's helping the mind to let go as well. Because oftentimes the mind holds on so tight because it's selfish. It holds on. It doesn't want to share. So by practicing generosity and sharing, that's what helps to train the mind to let go. And then in the fourth noble truth, the Buddha is pointing to the Eightfold Path and saying the path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path, which is what we're discussing today. But all of this is based on right view, is understanding that you're causing your own discontent feelings. The next thing in the Eightfold Path is right intention. Right intention is also translated as right thought or right thinking. Some people refer to it that way. I use right intention, but it is also the right thinking or the right thought. And here the Buddha explains exactly what this is in his words. He says, in what monks is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This monks is called right intention. What in renunciation is, is this is having an interest or willingness to let go, essentially give up unwholesomeness, letting go of the mind's false beliefs and false perceptions of reality. Because what's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is it doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't have the wisdom of these teachings. And there's certain beliefs and certain views and certain opinions that the unenlightened mind has that are untrue. They're false. And until you independently verify the Buddhist teachings and you can see the truth for yourself, the mind's continuing to hold on to these false beliefs or these opinions or these views of reality. The mind is unknowing of true reality. So in order to progress on this path to enlightenment, you have to develop the intention or the thought or the thinking of renunciation where you're willing to let go of the unwholesomeness that you're currently doing in life and also let go of these false beliefs or these false views that are causing the mind to continue to be shaken up. One of those false views or false opinions is that other people are causing you to be angry or frustrated, right? If you currently feel that way, you currently believe that way, that's a misperception. And it's in the Buddhist teachings that you deeply can learn and understand that you are causing your own discontentedness. And that's what right view in the Four Noble Truths is all about. But here as part of right intention, you have to have the willingness in the interest to let go of any false beliefs and these misperceptions that are in the mind. And there's going to be several along the way. Additionally, there needs to be the intention of non-ill will. 
Another way to say that is having the intention of goodwill, essentially practicing to eliminate animosity, bitterness, anger, hatred, and all those lesser versions. Because as long as you have ill will in the mind, you're going to then have intentions, speech, and actions that are causing harm in the world. And when you put out harm, harm is going to come back to you. This is the natural law of gamma, that whatever you put out is going to come back to you. It's the results of your decisions. So if your decision is that you're going to hold on to ill will, then that's going to motivate unskillful speech and unskillful actions. And then when you put those things out into the world, then people are going to speak to you in unskillful ways. And people are going to have certain actions towards you that are unskillful and that are harsh and aggressive because that's what you're putting out. So in order for you to improve the condition of your mind and the condition of your life, you need to have the intention of non-ill will. In addition to the intention of harmlessness, not being interested in harming other beings, not causing or being incapable of causing harm to other beings. Because as long as you're causing harm to others, harm is going to come to you. And the whole rest of this practice of the Eightfold Path is based on you having the interest or the intention or the thinking or the thought of not causing harm to other beings. Because the more harm you put out, the more harm that's going to come back to you. Essentially, it's like a rubber ball, that if somebody throws a rubber ball and it's bouncing around in the room, they're trying to harm you. If you pick up the rubber ball and you throw the rubber ball and it bounces around, this rubber ball is just going to keep bouncing all around because both of you guys are picking up the rubber ball and bouncing it around. But if somebody picks up the rubber ball and bounces it and you just allow it to lose its energy and roll over to the corner and you never pick up the rubber ball, then you can extinguish the unwholesome results of your decisions by choosing the wise decision not to argue, for example, or to not be hostile and bitter towards others. By you not being bitter and hostile to others, gradually over time, you will see that people won't be bitter towards you or hostile towards you. Essentially, what the Eightfold Path is discussing in this part of the steps of one and two of right view and right intention is right view is the Four Noble Truths and accepting responsibility for your own intentions, your own feelings, your own speech, your own actions, understanding that everything that you do in the world is going to produce some result. There's going to be a decision that you make, and then there's going to be some result of that decision. So if you understand and can have this breakthrough of understanding the Four Noble Truths, that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing the discontentedness. Now you can be liberated from going around and trying to train other people to do things your way. This is what the unenlightened mind typically wants to do because the unenlightened mind blames other people for your anger. So therefore, the way that the unenlightened mind thinks to fix this problem is to train other people to do things your way. And you think that if you can just get everyone else to do things the way you want, then your life will be peaceful. But you can get everybody to do things your way because of the universal truth of impermanence. And because there's 7.5 billion people in the world, you can't get everyone to do things your way. So by accepting responsibility for your feelings, your speech, your actions, and working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, accepting responsibility and accountability for what you're experiencing in life, now you can focus on the real problem 
which is the pollutions of mind that exist in the unenlightened mind. By focusing on the true problem, now you can experience real results. And that requires to also understand right intention, which is the intention of renunciation or letting go, and the intention of non-ill will or practice of loving kindness. Because loving kindness is goodwill or a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And having this intention or this thought or this thinking of harmlessness, not causing harm to other beings. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about this first section of the Eightfold Path. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Well, as for the first and second uh, universal truths, you mentioned that all conditioned objects are impermanent, and it seems that they, the feelings of discontentedness are conditioned. So does this mean that there is a way to eliminate all these feelings, all discontentedness from the mind? Yes, through eliminating the conditions that are causing the discontentedness, now the mind is purified. It doesn't have those conditions of things like craving, desire, attachment. That's what's causing the mind to be discontent. So when you remove those conditions, now the mind is purified. It's unconditioned. And now with an unconditioned mind, you experience unconditioned peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy. So this unconditioned joy, it's not based on any condition. The enlightened mind is just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So in the unenlightened mind, it might experience happiness, excitement, elation based on the condition that it's sunny outside. And when it's sunny outside, you get happy and excited. But then because that sunshine is impermanent, when it rains or it's cloudy or it's snowing or it's cold or whatever it is, when that weather has changed because of impermanence, now that condition no longer exists that arose those pleasant feelings. Now the mind experiences this painful feelings, which is conditioned on something else. It's raining out. So now the mind is experiencing sadness or anger. So when you remove the conditions and the mind is purified and it has this unconditioned mental qualities that are peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, if it's sunny out, an enlightened being can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But if it's raining out, an enlightened being can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy too because they didn't base those feelings on any impermanent condition like sunshine, for example. So this is the training where the mind gets purified and gets trained to no longer base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. So there'll be this unconditioned joy where the mind is just always joyful regardless of what's going on around you. So let me double check this again. Uh, the goal, which is enlightenment, is not to eliminate all feelings. It's to eliminate conditioned feelings, right? Exactly. You're eliminating the unenlightened mind's tendency to base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition because it's only a matter of time before those conditions change. So therefore your feelings are gonna change as well. You're gonna move from this happiness to the sadness. And then when the mind's sad, then it's gonna to move to this boredom or this loneliness. And then it moves back to this 
thrill, this euphoria, because it's basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. But an enlightened being doesn't do that. An enlightened being's mind has been trained to not base its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. Well, on Zoom, we have a question from Chrissy. She writes, thank you, teacher David. My question is understanding that I create my own discontentedness. How do I let go of the burden of blame when others blame me for their discontentedness? For example, some find me annoying because I am different or see things differently than them. It's hurtful to me, to the mind. Uh, still to think of this being as annoying. Is this the ego and attachment to being seen and not annoying? Yes, there's craving, desire, attachment in there to have these friends and have certain friends. There's certain craving to be perceived in the world a certain way, wanting to be seen and observed and perceived in the world a certain way, where you need to understand that if people are having these misperceptions, which many people in the world do because they don't understand the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, you have to understand the wisdom of these teachings deeply so that if someone says, you're annoying me, and let's just say it's a friend, then if you know the truth, you can just smile and you know you can either choose to continue to be friends with that person or not. But if you understand the truth that you're not causing somebody to be annoyed, they're causing it themselves, then you can remain unaffected by the words that they're sharing. And when you get rid of wanting to be perceived in the world a certain way, then you understand that you're making wise decisions about your life and you practice this path closer and closer. And if other people perceive you as being annoying, then that's their perception. And then you get to decide whether or not to be friends with them. But if you're experiencing discontentedness, pushing a person out of your life isn't going to solve that. But you can choose to no longer be a friend with somebody while still understanding that you're causing your own discontentedness. Maybe this person is negative, they're hostile, they're bitter, they're constantly blaming you for things, and it's not possible for you to repair that relationship. So you just choose to move on. But any kind of discontentedness that you're experiencing is because of your own craving, desire, attachment. And you just got to do enough meditation. You've got to do enough practice of generosity. You've got to do enough of all the other practice of the Eightfold Path to get to the point where the mind's fully purified and you no longer base your inner feelings based on what other people are doing. Because as long as you allow your inner feelings to be based on what others are doing or what they're not doing, your mind's gonna be shaken up. So right now your mind is having craving, desire, attachment. It's being shaken up, it's experiencing discontentedness based on these impermanent conditions. So when somebody says something pleasing to you and they're like, oh, you're so friendly, Chrissy. You're such a wonderful person. I just enjoy being around you so much. Don't allow that to arise pleasant feelings. You've got to cut those off and let them go because if you allow that to arise pleasant feelings, then it's only a matter of time before someone says, you're annoying or you're bothering me or you know, why does your hair look that way? Or why did you wear a red shirt today? I hate the color red or whatever people might say, right? It's only a matter of time before you hear those disagreeable things. So the way to get ahead of the curve is don't allow the mind to arise these pleasant feelings whenever you hear agreeable speech about you being a wonderful person and how great you are and they really enjoy being around you. Because if you allow your mind to base its 
inner feelings on that, then it's only a matter of time before someone says something negative. Because of the universal truth of impermanence, you can't live in a world where everybody is saying something wonderful about you because of the universal truth of impermanence. So you've got to train your mind to not crave permanence. And then when you hear that positive, agreeable speech, just maybe thank them, you know, say thank you for your kindness or whatever you're going to say, but don't allow it to arise pleasant feelings. Then you won't experience painful feelings when somebody says something negative. Yes, you're right, sir. Thank you, sir. One more follow-up question. How do you not be friends with someone and not push them away? So what you do is you just walk forward. Like say you have a friend that you're spending time around and you know the relationship started off fine but now it's gotten to the point where they're being negative and hostile and aggressive or bitter or resentful you just choose to slowly no longer talk to that person you just you know where in the past you might have texted them you might have called them you might have invited them out to things you don't have to go to that person and say i'm choosing to no longer be friends with you because that's going to create a confrontation instead you just gradually slowly stop chatting with them, you stop inviting them to things, you just move on in your life and do other things. But if your mind's attached and holding on to this person, it's going to be hard for you to let go. That's where that intention of renunciation comes in. You've got to be willing to let this go in order to move on and find more wholesome relationships in your life. A question from Rick, he writes, I'm going through the, pre the grief process, anger, sadness, and loneliness. Is this ill will? Is this also a form of craving, craving to extinguish unpleasant feelings? These feelings are affecting my ability to concentrate on other life tasks. If you're grieving like from death or if you're grieving from the ending of a relationship, this isn't necessarily ill will. What ill will is, is there's that bitterness, that hostility, that aggression that then motivates unskillful speech and actions, which we're going to be talking about today. But when the mind is grieving from the breakup of a relationship or if somebody dies, this is the craving desire attachment. All discontentedness is being caused by craving desire attachment. So the same reason why people are upset and crying and grieving at a wedding is the same reason why they're grieving and upset at a funeral is because the mind's holding on. It wants to keep this family member permanently in your family. And then when they get married, people grieve and they're upset and they're sometimes angry and frustrated that this person is getting married and they have this perception that this person's leaving the family. But in reality, it's just impermanence that they're not going to permanently live and reside with the family. They're going to go off and start their own family, perhaps. And then the same thing is when somebody dies, the mind is holding on and craving permanence, wanting to keep this person permanently. It's not the love that's causing someone to grieve at a wedding. It's not the love that's causing the mind to grieve at a funeral. There's love in there, I'm sure. But it's the craving, desire, attachment, wanting to hold this person permanently that is causing the sadness or the anger or the frustration. Well, can we say that right intention is a result of right view? I mean, if the mind understands deeply that others are not causing us discontentedness, so there is no reason to have ill will towards others. Is this correct? Yes, that's part of it. But, you know, we can't just snap our fingers and make that occur because there's this mental object of ill will in the mind 
that's deeply rooted based on multiple experiences that people have had over life. So there's other parts of this path that are uprooting that ill will out of the mind so that you can then practice having goodwill or loving kindness. But to answer your question, Bossom, yes, once you have right view and you understand that it's the mind holding on and craving and clinging that is causing all your discontentedness, then it's right intention that you understand the intention of renunciation and letting go is what ultimately is going to solve it. And then also, as you say, that because it's not other people that are causing you to be angry and frustrated, you can then arise more loving kindness and compassion towards these other beings because they're struggling in life just like you. If they're unenlightened and you're unenlightened, they're struggling in life just like you, suffering from the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. They're being plagued by this lack of wisdom. And it's when you arise the wisdom of what's causing the mind to be shaken up that then you can take action to fix it. As long as the mind resides in ignorance or the unknowing of true reality and you don't know why the mind is experiencing anger or worse yet, you're blaming other people for the anger, the sadness or other discontent feelings, then this is going to keep occurring over and over and over again. But once you gain the wisdom of this path, in all the other teachings of the Buddha, then as you practice more and more and you see the truth, that's where your mind can now be purified and it can move to this point where there's no longer this pollution in the mind causing it to be constantly shaken up. When you focus on the real problem, the longer we blame other people for the problems in our life, the longer those problems are going to continue because other people aren't the problem in our life. We're causing all the things that we experience in life as a result of our decisions. So when we gain wisdom to make wiser decisions, we will experience more wholesome outcomes. Well, Chrissy asks, can you please explain what is a mental object? Sure, the way that I think about a mental object is it's a container, right? So think of it like a cardboard box. So ill will is a mental object. Central desire is a mental object. Complacency is a mental object. It's deeper rooted in the mind. The way that it gets formed, and we're going to be talking about this when we get to right mindfulness, is that when we were born as a baby, we didn't have ill will in the mind. We didn't come out of our mother's womb thinking with hostility and aggression and bitterness. That isn't what we're born with. The ill will gets formed over time where we create this container or this mental object of something like ill will. So we had certain experiences growing up where people treated us certain ways and we didn't understand this wisdom. We blamed other people for the anger and the frustration that we were experiencing. And we kind of collected up all this baggage and we collected up all this baggage and started building this animosity or this ill will or this hatred, this resentment towards other people because we think that it's them that's causing us to feel this way. And what we're going to be doing as part of this path is cutting that off so that you're no longer feeding the mental object. And then as part of the Buddhist teachings, you're uprooting these mental objects and getting them out of the mind so that ill will will no longer reside in the mind. And you're uprooting that and now you're cultivating something like loving kindness, which is the exact opposite of ill will. And by uprooting the ill will, 
getting that out and moving in the loving kindness, now instead of being aggressive, hostile, and bitter towards people with your speech and actions, you can now be loving and kind. But again, that's a slow transformation that the mind is gradually uprooting the ill will and gradually bringing in the loving kindness. It takes time to do this because the mind has accumulated this ill will over such a long period of time. It's not going to just get out of the mind in the snap of a finger. It takes time to gradually train it. Thanks, sir. No more questions for now. All right. So let's move on to talking about right speech. Right speech is the third step of the Eightfold Path, because once you understand the wisdom that you're causing your own difficulties, your own challenges, the struggles that you're experiencing in life are being caused by this lack of wisdom, by this craving, desire, attachment, and there's this anger in the mind as well. Now, the Buddha starts explaining to you in the Eightfold Path the moral conduct, because by you having improved moral conduct, making wise decisions about your moral conduct, now you will experience more wholesome results. But as long as you're unwise about the moral conduct and how to practice something like speech or communication, as long as you're putting out harsh speech, for example, then that's what's going to come back to you. If you're impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, then when you put that out, that is what's going to come back to you. So the Buddhist teachings are helping you to clean up each individual aspect of your life practice. And here, during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was called right speech because that's all there was, was speech. But nowadays we have speech, we have text messages, we have emails, we have social media posts, we have all these different things, the way that we communicate. So even though this is called right speech, you can think of it as right communication. He says here, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. So this is the Eightfold Path. This is the level of detail that he describes in the Eightfold Path. Because as long as you're lying, and that's what you're doing in the world, people are going to know that. People are going to discover that about you. And then people are going to lie about you. You're going to be untrustworthy. You're not going to be dependable. People are going to be very suspicious about when you say things and they can't trust your word. If you slander people, meaning talking publicly in a negative way about other people, then people are going to do the same thing about you. And it's going to be very hard for you to get to a peaceful and joyful mental state as long as other people are speaking so negatively about you. So as long as you talk negatively with slander about others, people are going to do the same thing to you because you're showing them how to communicate. And whatever you do, that's what's going to come back to you. If you have harsh speech or aggressive speech, as long as you're doing that to others, that's what's going to come back to you. So if you notice that your kids speak harsh or aggressive or your friends or your family members speak harsh and aggressive to you, this is because that's what you're doing as well. And people are speaking to you in the same way that you speak to them. Or if you have frivolous speech, frivolous speech is like idle chatter or unpurposeful, unbeneficial speech. If you've ever been around somebody or if you yourself has ever just been yada, 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 just frivolous speech, you know how hard that is to listen to somebody that's doing that. So if you're speaking with frivolous speech, 
people are going to have a very hard time listening and it's almost painful to listen to somebody that has frivolous speech in the unenlightened state. When the mind is enlightened, it won't be painful anymore. But still, when you're speaking with frivolous speech, it's causing harm to others. So therefore, people aren't going to be able to put as much influence or gain as much value from your speech. They're going to have to work really hard to understand you. And they're going to gain this experience where every time you speak, there's not purpose or benefit in what you're saying. So therefore, you're going to find it very difficult to be influential and beneficial to other people. So this is what the Buddha says in the Eightfold Path. This is one layer of understanding that he shares in the Eightfold Path. But then there's other teachings that he shares things related to speech. So he's got this teaching on the five factors of well-spoken speech. And this plugs into the Eightfold Path as part of right speech. If you're currently lying, slandering, having harsh speech or frivolous speech, it would be wise to improve all of those and ensure that you're not speaking in that way and then go deeper into your practice and develop the five factors of well-spoken speech. The five factors of well-spoken speech are speaking at the right time. What you say is true. You speak gently. You speak beneficially and with a mind of loving kindness. Because if you've ever spoken at the wrong time or if somebody else has spoken at the wrong time with you, you understand how that feels to be interrupted, for example. You didn't like that. So when you interrupt other people, then they're going to tend to interrupt you because that's what you do. That's your practice. So they're going to do the same thing to you. Another aspect of having speech that is spoken at the proper time is ensuring that your mind isn't discontent at the time that you're speaking. Because if you're angry or frustrated or stressed or irritated and you're speaking to others, that's going to come through in your speech. So you would like to make sure that your mind is calm and peaceful before you actually speak because that's going to ensure that you can form the best communication with other people. And then also, if you're able to be attentive to other people's minds. So if somebody comes home, you're living with a partner or children or other adults, and somebody comes home from work or comes home from outside and you jump on them right away and say, hey, we've got this bill that we didn't pay. If we don't hurry up and pay it, our electric's going to get cut off. If you did that, that's the wrong time to speak when this person just came home. It's better to let them come in, put their bags down, maybe get some water, maybe have some food, maybe even check in with them. Is this a good time to have a discussion about something that's really important? And then if they say yes, okay, have your discussion. If they say, no, I got some really bad news at work today, I'm not ready to have a discussion like that. Then you know, like, okay, you can restrain your mind and not share that and wait until it's a better time. So speaking at the proper time, you can read what I wrote in this chapter. I put a lot of details in there about how to ensure it's the proper time to speak and ensuring that what you say is true. Always be sure that when you speak, it's something you've seen with your own eyes and you know with 100% certainty that it's true. Because if you speak with false speech, people aren't going to be able to rely on you. Likewise, if you speak gently, this is really, really helpful in your life. And what it means to speak gently is be attentive to your tempo, your tone, and your word choice. If your tone and tempo or your word choice is harsh and aggressive, then that's what people are going to speak to you with. 
So if you can train the mind to speak gentle with your tone, your tempo, and your word choice, now as you learn to speak that way more and more with your children, your friends, your coworkers, your family, and you start cleaning up your practice over a consistent long-term period of time, now people will generally start to speak to you the same way. But as long as you continue to speak harsh and aggressive, others are going to speak to you that way too. And because you've spoken that way in the past, even if you changed your speech in an instant, which you can't, but even if you did, people are still going to speak to you harsh because that's what you did in the past. So you have to develop this practice and do it for a consistent long-term period of time to burn off all your prior decisions or your old gamma. The old decisions that you made are going to have results. So you've got to practice this for a consistent long-term period of time, improving your practice. And then slowly but surely, people will start speaking to you in the same way that you're speaking to them. And then ensure everything that you say is beneficial. When you speak beneficially or with purpose, then people are more influenced by what you're sharing. Whereas if you're just sharing things that are unbeneficial, then people start to tune you out. By speaking beneficially, then people are very interested in what it is that you have to share because you're benefiting them or you're benefiting a certain project or you're speaking something that is actually helpful and beneficial to others. Be sure to speak with a mind of loving kindness. Loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, this active goodwill. If you speak with hatred or ill will, this is going to produce unbeneficial results. So even if you were speaking at the right time, what you said is true, it's gentle, it's beneficial, but let's just say you got some sarcasm in there where you've got a little bit of ill will or animosity, this conversation is going to blow up on you because you're not speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech. So now that you've learned this, remember you don't believe it, but instead you look back and you reflect on this to independently verify it. Conversations that went really bad and blew up or had difficulties in your life, you can look back on those and you can see where you and or the other person wasn't speaking in this way and therefore the conversation blew up and you may even lost a friendship or another relationship as a result. But then you can also look back at conversations that went well and that turned out really well for you. And you can see where you and or the other person were speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech without realizing that's what you were doing necessarily. And this is how you independently verify the Buddhist teachings through your reflections of looking at past conversations. And now that you've done the intellectual learning and you start doing the reflection, now you start practicing this where you bring your practice up closer and closer to this every day, every week, every month. You just gradually work on improving your speech and how you interact with people. And what you'll observe is that your relationships, both personally and professionally, will blossom. When you have craving, desire, attachment to another person, it's going to be a lot harder for you to practice something like right speech. But as you eliminate craving, desire, attachment through breathing, mindfulness, meditation, practicing generosity, you'll see that it'll become easier and easier to practice right speech and bring your speech up closer and closer to using the five factors of well-spoken speech. You'll develop what Thai people call barami. Barami is the one who people listen to. Barami is established by somebody who's speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech. 
Here in Thailand, there's usually certain elders in the village that people very highly respect. They know that they have a high degree of wisdom. And when there's challenges in the village, the villagers will go to that person or that couple and they will ask them questions because this person has bother me the one who people listen to they have wisdom and they speak in such a way that other people are very influenced by what they have to say because they're speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech so if you would like to be influential in your community or in your family or in your profession you need to establish bother me the one who people listen to. And this takes time for you to establish this. And the way you do it is you improve your practice where you're now practicing right speech more and more in all your relationships and all your conversations. But realize that that's going to be a gradual process. You're going to not be able to speak with the five factors of well-spoken speech in every single relationship right now. But gradually, you can work towards that. And as you do, that's where you'll see your personal and professional relationships blossom. Next, you would like to look at right action and ensure that you're practicing right action. Right action is all about our bodily actions and not causing harm with our body. With the Buddha, he talks about these three things in right action, which is refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. When we study the five precepts, which is two weeks from now, you'll get more details on what these are. And using the words of the Buddha, you'll see exactly what he's talking about. But he helps you to understand these three as part of right action as this layer of understanding. But what you should understand is right action is all about not causing harm with your bodily actions. If you got on an airplane and you dragged your suitcase down the aisle and you were bumping people's knees and running over their feet, you're causing harm through your bodily action. And this is going to cause problems for you. You might get somebody that gets aggressive with you or hostile, maybe even somebody that wants to fight you or do harm to you because you're causing harm with your bodily actions, people are gonna to wanna to cause harm to you. So while in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha explains these three things of taking life, taking what is not given, and sexual misconduct, you can understand the broader picture, which is not causing harm through your bodily actions because there's various bodily actions that we could potentially do. And I've drawn these from a couple different places that the Buddha teaches. He talks about killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, substances that cause heedlessness. He also talks about gambling as causing harm. But the translation of the five precepts that the Buddha shares is much deeper than what is being shared here. He didn't say refrain from killing. He said, abandon the taking of life with stick or sword, live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So there's much more meaning there that is gonna be shared with you in chapter seven in the book, as well as when we do our talk about the five precepts. They aren't rules to follow, they're not commandments. He's providing you guidance of how you could potentially cause harm in the world based on your decisions. And by you not doing those harms, then harm won't come back to you. So if we're killing, stealing, or causing harm through our sexual conduct, then that harm is going to come back to us. 
Likewise, if we're taking substances that cause heedlessness, or if we're gambling, for example, that's going to cause harm, so harm is going to come back to us. So this is just to get you started understanding what right action is and starting to clean up your moral conduct around your actions. But more importantly, you should look at all your bodily movements and be sure that you're not causing any harm through your bodily movements. Then there's what's called right livelihood. What a livelihood is, is how you choose to sustain your life. How do you choose to earn your living? A livelihood could be something like being a doctor, a lawyer, a waiter, a food server, a taxi driver. These are all livelihoods. But also being a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad or being a retired individual, those are also livelihoods as well. In the Eightfold Path, the Buddha just talks about right livelihood very briefly because there's other parts of his teachings which are much more detailed around what is right livelihood. He says here, in what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. And then in other parts of his teachings, he shares what is right livelihood. A first layer is just understanding that there is something called a right livelihood and what is a livelihood. This is how you choose to sustain your life. And then in other parts of his teachings, he shares this teaching about what are the five wrong livelihoods. He talks about these five wrong livelihoods because these are the livelihoods that would cause harm in the world. If you had business and weapons or your job was related to the creation of weapons or selling of weapons, business and living beings, business and meat, business and substances that cause heedlessness, and business and poisons. These five wrong livelihoods, if you practice these, these are causing harm in the world, so harm is going to come back to you. And again, you don't have to believe the Buddha. These aren't rules. These aren't commandments. You can actually go through each one of these and discern for yourself and independently see the truth that if you practice any of these livelihoods, that it's going to cause harm to others, so therefore harm is going to come to you. Let's just take one of these that is really simple for you to see, and I'll show you how to reflect on this. And then you can do this other reflection on the others yourself if you like. Let's take the one business and substances that cause heedlessness. If I was standing on the street corner selling cocaine or heroin, this is causing harm in the community, and therefore harm is going to come to me. I'm potentially going to get robbed. People are going to beat me up. People are going to steal from me. I might even get murdered. I might get arrested and go to jail. That's because of my wrong livelihood. And I might even get addicted to the substances that I'm selling. Addition, let's talk about a legal livelihood that is substances that cause heedlessness. Liquor and alcohol is legal in most countries, but that's a human law. That's not the natural law of gamma. So alcohol is a substance that causes heedlessness. If you look at communities of where are places that typically get robbed, it's usually liquor stores. Places that sell alcohol typically will get robbed. And oftentimes or sometimes those people get beat up or they get murdered, they get hurt, they get all this fear as a result of getting robbed. This is a result of their decisions. It's not that they're being punished. It's not that they are necessarily doing something wrong. It's just that they lack the wisdom. We tend to follow human laws. 
But because we lack the wisdom of this natural law of gamma, we might take a job in a place like a liquor store. And we might not even be the cashier. We might just be the person who mops the floors. But we have to always be on guard. We're always kind of fearful of who's walking into the store. And are we going to get robbed? Are we going to get beat up? Are we going to get murdered? What's going to happen to us? This is a result of our decisions of having business and substances that cause heedlessness. So you can go through these other livelihoods and you can do this for yourself and see that through practicing any of these five wrong livelihoods, you're going to be causing harm in the world. So harm is going to come back to you. The Buddha has another teaching even deeper than this, a couple actually, that go beyond what I just shared with you around what is a wrong livelihood. I explain these in chapter five, which is scheming, flattery, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. The Buddha is here talking about ways that we conduct our livelihood, that by conducting our livelihood in this way, we're going to end up causing harm. Therefore, harm is going to come to us. So you can see in the book where I explain each one of these in detail. And then there's a place in volume 12 where the Buddha explains right livelihood even further. But in terms of this first group learning program, in terms of this first book of volume one, if you're looking to clean up your livelihood, this book has kind of an initial understanding to help you start cleaning up your livelihood. And then as you choose to study further in the book series and you study perhaps in the next program, the Pali Canon and English Study Group, I will share with you even deeper teachings around right livelihood that will help you to clean that up even further if you're having difficulties there. But if you are having difficulties there now, you can even reach out to me and I'll be sure that you're able to get access to those teachings. They're in the book. You can find them yourself, but I can point you directly to them if you send me a message or if you post uh, something in Facebook or you schedule a personal guidance session. If I observe that somebody's having challenges with their livelihood, I will direct them to those teachings so that they can then read them and understand them more deeply. And that'll help you to clean up your livelihood. So essentially, the moral conduct of the Eightfold Path is this right speech, ensuring that you're not causing any harm through your verbal conduct, ensuring that all communication, whether it's verbal, text, chat, posts, or emails, it should all be harmless, practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech and realizing that it's going to be a gradual progress in order to help you get to that point. You're going to need to gradually train the mind gradually practice and experience this gradual progress. And then right action is ensuring that you're not causing harm through your bodily actions. All your bodily actions should be harmless. And then the same thing with your livelihood, ensuring that you clean up your decisions to sustain your life, that you're not sustaining your life based on something that's causing harm in the world. Because as long as you're doing that, that harm that you're causing through your livelihood is going to come back to you. And it's going to be very difficult to have a peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy when harm is just continuing to come back to you over and over and over again. So let me just pause here before we move on to the next section of the Eightfold Path and see if there's any questions on the moral conduct. Well, on Zoom, Tracy has a question. She writes, Teacher David, are you saying a being can experience unwholesome karma? by cleaning an establishment that sells substances that cause headlessness? Yes, because in that situation, if you're in that business, 
cleaning the floor, for example, you are supporting a business that is selling substances that cause heedlessness. And if somebody comes in to rob that store, it's not like they're just going to rob the cashier or they're just going to murder the cashier. They're just going to beat up the cashier, for example. By being in that business of substances that cause heedlessness, even the person who's just mopping the floor, they're contributing to that business. They're contributing to that harm. So therefore, harm is able to come to them as a result of their decisions. Well, um, I'm interested to know the difference between harm and discontentedness. I mean, one cannot cause discontentedness for others, but one is able to cause harm for others through a speech or action. Yeah, so let's use an example of stealing something. So let's say that I stole something from you, Basim. Me stealing from you is causing you harm. If I stole your car, I don't know that you have a car, but if I stole your car, you would then not be able to get to work. You would not be able to go do personal things. You would not be able to go shopping and purchase the supplies that you need. So I'm causing harm to you because you worked in order to accumulate certain money. And then you purchase that car and you now rely on that car in order to go get the things that you need and go to work and various things like this, right? So I'm causing harm to you through my action of stealing from you. But if your mind gets discontent when your car is gone, that's you causing your own discontentness because your mind is trying to hold on to this car permanently. That's not to say that what I'm doing is proper. The Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths and explaining why your mind is discontent, it's just explaining why your mind is discontent. It's not saying that I'm okay to steal your car because you're causing your own discontentedness. These are two separate things that you can cause harm to somebody through something like stealing one of their possessions. But if their mind becomes discontent, they're causing their own discontentedness. Thanks, teacher. A, a comment from HEF. I think you may have a comment on it. She writes, this makes being an American quite problems. Quite problem? Yes. Uh, why is that? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Well. Okay, uh, Tonka uh, asks, are small talks okay when socializing? Yeah, if you need to talk, because remember, it's beneficial speech or purposeful speech. If you're meeting somebody and you're like, hey, how's your day going? You know, how's your children? This is all beneficial because you're building a relationship with this person and you're trying to understand them. You're trying to build camaraderie. You're trying to build a friendship and a relationship and you're showing care and concern about their family, for example. So purposeful and beneficial the purpose or the benefit can be that you're building a relationship with each other. But you're doing that in a peaceful way, in a calm way. You're doing it gently as you speak. So those things can be beneficial. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So let's talk about the mental discipline and specifically starting with right effort, which is where the Buddhist teachings, he starts to explain this mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. This mental discipline is where the Buddhist teachings, in my view, really start to excel. Because some of the other things that we were talking about, except for maybe right view, you've kind of been aware of and to a certain level of degree. But when you start talking about the mental discipline, this is where the Buddha is explaining to you how to train the mind, how to gain control and discipline over the mind. Because the unenlightened mind is like a wild animal. It just wants to run around the forest and it, it's not trained. And that's why it experiences 
these discontent feelings because it's not trained. And what you're looking to do as a practitioner moving to enlightenment is to train the mind to have discipline and control. So here, all of these three steps, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, they're all connected to each other. Here the Buddha says, in what monks is right effort? Here monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So I'm going to help you understand this because the Buddha is saying this all is one statement and your mind might get a little bit lost in there, especially if this is the first time you've ever heard this. So I've broken this down into four different aspects because that's what he's actually explaining is four separate things. And now I've stripped out a lot of the other words so that you can see clearly what it is that he's actually saying. The first one is he's saying prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising. And now let me give you an example. You probably aren't thinking about killing another human being. That's not something that's currently in the mind. That, that's really far from your thinking. And what the Buddha is saying is take the effort to prevent this unwholesome mental state that has not arisen from arising in the mind. Don't ever allow this to come into the mind. For example, there's other examples as well. The second one is abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. This is any unwholesomeness that's currently in the mind. He's saying take the effort to abandon those unwholesome mental states. And here's just some examples. These may or may not exist in your current mind, but if these aren't there, there might be others. So if you're in a current relationship and you have a craving for sexual contact, with another person outside of your relationship. You know that this is gonna cause harm. So if you have this thought that comes up in the mind to have sexual relations with somebody outside of your current relationship, you should take the effort to abandon that unwholesome mental state, eliminate it from the mind. Or if there's anger or frustration or irritation that arises in the mind, take the right effort to abandon that from the mind. That's the unwholesomeness that's in the mind that you need to take the effort to actively eliminate from the mind. That's what he's explaining here. The third aspect of right effort is produce unarisen, wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. So if there's certain wholesome mental states that you're learning as part of this path, and the Buddha is gonna be explaining unwholesome mental states and wholesome mental states. If your mind currently doesn't have certain wholesome mental states in the mind that you learn that are helpful and beneficial, the Buddha is saying take the effort to arise those wholesome mental states in the mind. So let's use the example of generosity. If you've learned that 
the giving and sharing is part of training the mind to let go. And that's beneficial for you in terms of developing your life practice. And you know that you're currently not a generous person. You find it very difficult to share with others. Then the Buddha is saying, take the effort to arise this generosity in the mind, bring it into the mind so that you can now practice giving and sharing and generosity with others. Or perhaps you might lack compassion. Compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. If you have indifference, where you see other people struggling in life, and you're like, ah, so what, who cares? That's their karma, I don't care. You know, whatever happens to them, happens to them. It's not me, I don't care. If your mind thinks that way, or even a smidget thinks that way, then it's lacking compassion. So when you understand the wholesome mental state of compassion is needed for someone to move the mind to enlightenment, then you realizing that you don't have compassion, the Buddha is saying take the effort to arise that wholesome mental state and bring it into the mind. And then the fourth one is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. So this is certain wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. He's saying to support those, encourage those, don't allow them to fade. So just some examples might be loving kindness or sympathetic joy. These are all healthy mental states that you're going to learn in chapter 14 of this program and of this book, that if you have loving kindness in the mind, and this is a wholesome mental state that's in the mind, then what the Buddha is saying here is to support that, encourage that, don't allow it to fade. Because if you allow the loving kindness to fade away, then it's not going to be maintained in the mind. So you need to maintain this wholesome mental state of loving kindness in the mind. I've lost my Zoom here. I'm just waiting for it to come back before we move on to the next step of the Eightfold Path. Here we go. Okay, Zoom's back. All right, so a little impermanence there, just like the Buddha said, right? The universal truth of impermanence, losing Zoom is definitely impermanent, right? Zoom is impermanent. So I just finished up right effort there. What right effort is all about is ensuring that you practice those four right efforts, that anything that is currently unwholesome, that is not in the mind, you prevent that from arising in the mind. Any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind If there's something unwholesome in the mind, then you apply the effort to eliminate those from the mind. If there's certain wholesome mental states that are not yet in the mind, the Buddha is saying take the effort to arise those in the mind. And then if there's certain wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, he's saying support those, encourage those, don't allow those to fade. So the way that you can think about it is anything unwholesome, You would like to take the effort to cut that off, let it go, eliminate it from the mind, and prevent it from ever coming into the mind. Anything that's wholesome, you would like to bring it into the mind. You would like to support it, encourage it, don't allow it to fade. The way that I explain this to my nine-year-old son is kick out the bad stuff and bring in the good stuff and taking the effort to do that. That's what right effort is all about. Now let's talk about right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is helping you to understand what is referred to as the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness are gonna help you to actually eliminate discontentedness from the mind. Let's read the Buddha's words so that you can understand what he's sharing around right mindfulness. 
He says, in what monks is right mindfulness? Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. All right, well, now I'm going to help you to understand it and kind of break the words down so that you can see what he's actually talking about. Essentially, what right mindfulness is, is it's awareness of mind, having the awareness of mind, of what's in the mind. Because if you're going to purify this mind and take the right effort to eliminate the unwholesome and arise the wholesome, you have to have awareness of the mind and being aware of what's in the mind. So you can just think of right mindfulness generally as awareness of mind. And that might be what you practice for now. Just having awareness of what's going on in the mind. That's really important to develop that. And you're developing that in breathing mindfulness meditation and throughout your daily life is having the awareness of the mind. But then you would like to develop more and more this four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness are going to help you to be able to see the life cycle of discontentedness and how it's occurring as it progresses from bodily sensations to feelings to affecting the condition of the mind to then forming these mental objects. So this is where the Buddha says body as body or feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mental objects as mental objects. Having the awareness of these. Oftentimes people use the word mindfulness today in ways that the Buddha wasn't using it. People will use the word mindfulness to say, you know, can you mindfully carry this glass of water to the table? And what they're really saying is, can you carefully carry this glass of water to the table? But what mindfulness is, is mindfulness is awareness of mind and specifically being aware of these bodily sensations. And then the other aspects as well, as I'm going to explain them to you. When the mind has craving, desire, attachment, it's causing its own discontentedness, as we shared. But prior to the mind experiencing pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, there's going to be some bodily sensation that it experiences. So if you've ever gotten really angry before, you know what the feeling of anger feels like. But have you ever observed how there's like perhaps these sharp pains or this feeling of heat moving from the feet up the body? Or you might feel like your head is really hot or it feels pressure and like your head's going to explode. That's a bodily sensation associated with the feeling of anger arising. So prior to anger coming into the mind as a feeling, there's going to be this bodily sensation. And the same thing with the pleasant feelings. Before excitement, elation, and thrill, there's going to be some bodily sensation that's occurring before it becomes a feeling in the mind. And what the Buddha teaches is that when you're aware of those bodily sensations, to apply right effort, to cut that off and let it go. So when you observe the bodily sensations arising, 
associated with discontentedness, if you can catch it there and cut it off and let it go, you've just saved your mind a whole lot of trouble because that discontentedness doesn't come into the mind to become feelings. Because once it's feelings, now it's starting to pollute the mind and it has the potential to motivate unskillful speech and actions. But once it becomes feelings in the mind, you still have the ability to cut it off and let it go there. But if you don't cut it off and let it go as a feeling, it's now going to start affecting the condition of the mind for the next few hours, the next few days, maybe for a week or two. And you've experienced that where you've had some situation occur. And then because of the feelings in the mind, it's now affected the condition of the mind for multiple hours, days, or maybe a week or two. And then when it's affecting the condition of the mind, if you don't cut it off there, it forms these mental objects which are more deeply rooted. So what right mindfulness is doing is helping you to practice awareness of this life cycle of discontentedness. Because if you can get ahead of the curve and you can observe these bodily sensations arising, then you can cut it off and let it go before it ever pollutes the mind with feelings. And that would be ideal. But the thing is, is that you're just learning. You don't quite have the ability necessarily to observe those bodily sensations every single time. And your mind might not have been trained yet enough through breathing mindfulness meditation to easily let go of that bodily sensation when it's starting to arise. So right mindfulness, you can practice as awareness of mind. But then as you deepen your practice more and more, you would like to become aware of these bodily sensations so that you can save the mind all that trouble of having to experience the feelings of discontentedness. And now as it's polluting the mind with these feelings, it affects the condition of your mind long term and now forms these mental objects. When you can get to the point where you're aware of the bodily sensations and cut them off and let them go there, now you're starting to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. By applying right effort to cut off the arising discontentedness as just a bodily sensation, not only are you protecting the mind, but you're also cutting off the craving, desire, attachment that's producing the discontentedness to begin with. And as you get better and better at that, then eventually that craving, desire, attachment will be gone and it will no longer arise discontentedness at all. And you can get to the point where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So you'll see over time certain things that once arose anger in the mind, as you cut that off and cut that off more and more, you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, that now that same thing can occur and the mind just is kind of frustrated or irritated. And then you practice some more, you're continuing to accumulate the benefits of breathing mindfulness meditation and all the other steps of the Eightfold Path, that same thing happens and now the mind is just annoyed. And then you continue your practice, you continue to develop it, you've extinguished this particular craving, desire, attachment, that same thing occurs and the mind is not shaken up at all. There's no discontentedness at all. And that's where you see the truth for yourself that the Buddhist teachings are leading to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, and you're gradually extinguishing the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up and experiencing discontentedness. And you'll gradually move closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. As you're doing that, you're also developing right concentration. Right concentration is described by the Buddha and he describes the jhanas. But 
what rate concentration is, is rate concentration is a byproduct or the results of practicing all the other teachings. When you practice all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path, what you'll see is the mind becomes more focused. It'll have more concentration. There'll be more clarity of mind and there'll be this deep memory that starts being accomplished in the mind that you're able to remember things for longer and longer periods of time. I'm not going to actually read what the Buddha shares as part of right concentration because he's describing the jhanas and you can see this in the book but the jhanas are these preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it experiences the first stage of enlightenment and then there's four stages of enlightenment here he's just describing the certain mental qualities that you're going to experience as the mind's moving into these jhanas and this is helpful for you because this is kind of like the light bulb starting to flicker you're starting to get glimpses of what enlightenment is like. As you're putting together the teachings of the Eightfold Path and you start experiencing right concentration, you start observing various qualities of enlightenment and getting this glimpse of what enlightenment's like. It's like the light flickering. And the way that I explain this to help you understand what right concentration is, is it's developing your daily meditation practice so that you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and other specialized meditations as needed. And those are typically shared with you as you're having difficulties. You might ask your teacher for various help on different things. You're having certain situations. And there's two other meditations besides breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation that are shared with students on an as-needed basis. They're in the book in chapter 11, but Every practitioner is going to need breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. So early on in your practice, you're developing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And then you only use these other specialized meditations on an as needed basis. Not everybody's going to need those. So you would like to have breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation where you're doing two or three sessions per day and you're building up to 30 minutes or more. You might start out with just five or 10 minutes and that's where you're starting and that's completely fine. But over a period of time, you would like to expand that where you're increasing your meditation sessions to 30 minutes or more. And that's where you're going to really see the most benefits when you get to two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. And that might mean you need to clear out certain other aspects of your life. If you're filling up your life with a whole bunch of unbeneficial activities, then you might need to clear those things out of your life, making space for something like meditation, making space for learning, making space for reading the book and getting help from a teacher. And when you make that space in your life, then you'll start seeing the results of your decisions. By you making the decision to focus on training the mind, you'll get the benefits of seeing the improved condition of the mind. So right concentration is about developing your meditation practice and Outside of meditation, you practice singleness of mind in your daily life. What this is all about is focusing on just one thing at a time. What we've been taught and what some people try to practice is multitasking. This actually isn't helpful. A human being can't actually multitask. A mind can only actually do one thing at a time. This is part of the misperception or the false beliefs that an unenlightened mind has. If you're trying to multitask, what you're essentially doing is you're doing one task 
for three seconds or five seconds or 10 seconds or whatever it is. And then you're rapidly cycling to another task for two seconds or five seconds or what have you. And then you're going to another task for three seconds or 10 seconds or what have you. So what you're doing is you're training your mind to be overactive and rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. This is detrimental to your mind. A computer can multitask, but a human being can't multitask because a human mind can only focus on one thing at a time. But you can rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing, and this is where your mind becomes overactive, and you might have anxiety, and this is very detrimental. You might even find yourself having difficulty focusing with attention on one particular thing at a time because you haven't trained your mind to do that. So in meditation, you're training your mind to focus on just one thing, which is the breath. And you're developing that skill, you're developing that ability, you're developing right concentration in breathing mindfulness meditation. And then in daily life, you also would like to train the mind to just focus on one thing at a time. So if you're eating, you just eat. Or if you're watching TV, you just watch TV. Or if you're talking on the phone, you just talk on the phone. But if you're trying to do all these three things at one time, you're just rapidly cycling the mind to talk on the phone, watch TV, eat. Talk on the phone, watch TV, eat. And when you're done, you don't really feel like you've had a thorough, in-depth conversation. You might not even remember 100% of what you were talking about on the phone because your mind was too busy rapidly cycling. And now your friend who you were just talking to feels like you weren't present and you weren't giving them their attention. And now you've damaged a relationship and you haven't really benefited from the content of the TV program and you haven't really you know, benefited from the digesting of this food, you might even have a stomach ache after this. So if you just do one thing at a time, you might find that your phone conversation is only five or 10 minutes rather than 30 minutes because you're rapidly cycling your mind from thing to thing to thing to thing. So you'll actually be more productive in life by doing just one thing at a time. And your mind will be trained to have this focus and concentration, this clarity of mind. And by doing one thing at a time, you'll be able to bring all the wisdom of these teachings that you're learning into your conversations or into the activity that you're focused on. If you've ever tried to do two or three things at one time and you've broken a glass or you've stumped your toe or you've done something, this is because the mind isn't doing just one thing at a time. If you do just one thing at a time, you can have focus and concentration, do that one thing well then move on to the next thing. And you don't have to circle back and clean up the thing that you did because you did it really well. Where if you're rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing, you're not doing each thing well, and you're gonna have to circle back and clean those things up. And this is where this whole idea of multitasking being more productive, it's actually a false belief, it's a misperception, because you're actually spending more time cleaning up all your mistakes and all the problems Instead, you could just focus on one thing at a time, do it really thoroughly, and then move on to the next thing. So quality versus quantity. This is what right concentration is all about. As I mentioned in the Buddha's teachings about right concentration, he shares the jhanas. And here I share the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. I summarize it for you to help you understand what you're going to experience in each individual jhana. 
so that you can be aware that the mind is moving into these preliminary phases. And that's helpful because at this point, you know that you're putting together the Eightfold Path really well, and now it's time to start focusing on elimination of the 10 fetters. Essentially, to summarize the mental discipline, right effort is taking the initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities of mind. Right mindfulness is that awareness of mind, having the awareness of what's going on in the mind and practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. But you might start focusing on that you know, a little bit later. Maybe right now you're really busy working on right speech, so maybe you're going to just kind of practice awareness of mind and then later get into the four foundations of mindfulness as you gradually build up your practice. And then right concentration is practicing meditation and developing singleness of mind in daily life where you ultimately start experiencing the jhanas through developing your practice and putting together more and more of these steps of the Eightfold Path. Because it would be very hard to have concentration if we're talking harsh and aggressive to people. Our mind is polluted with anger and hostility and we're having sexual misconduct in the world, right? If we're having certain moral conduct that is unwholesome, it will be very difficult to have this concentration and this clarity of mind. So when we clean up the moral conduct, then what we find is that our meditation practice and our mental disciplines becomes more refined. And then as our mental discipline becomes more refined, then we see that we're more readily able to clean up our moral conduct. So you could be doing these things at different times, but you also might choose to focus on just one thing at a time, but still being aware of all these different steps of the Eightfold Path and bringing each one of them into your life more and more. And that's what I talked about the dials, is dialing in each one of these more and more, where the Buddha's Eightfold Path is sharing with you the ceiling, and you're gradually bringing your practice up to this more and more and more. In this chapter, chapter five, I share the details of each one of these steps, and I go into various examples and explain this in detail for you. So if you haven't yet read that chapter, I suggest that you do that so that you can deeply understand it. And you will probably refer back to that chapter multiple times throughout your days, your weeks, and your months as you bring your practice closer and closer to the full path. And then you can reach out for help as you need help by posting in the Facebook group, sending a private message, asking questions in these online classes, or scheduling personal guidance so that you can get help to deeply understand each one of these individual steps. So in summary, what you would like to do is focus on the core and central teachings of the path to enlightenment. These are the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice and eliminating the 10 fetters. This is what's going to bring the mind to enlightenment. There's other teachings that you're going to need to learn as well, but this is the core and central teachings that a beginning practitioner is going to start looking at very closely and really understand very deeply and start practicing more and more as they develop their practice. They're going to start seeing the results that discontentedness will gradually diminish and focus and concentration, clarity of mind and memory will gradually increase. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about anything that we discussed along the Eightfold Path. The way that you would do that is put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like.
Well, on Zoom, we have a question from Tony. Is the path to right mindfulness the eliminate of all feelings or are there beneficial feelings? The path to enlightenment isn't to eliminate all feelings. You're eliminating the unwholesomeness, the conditioned feelings. So an enlightened being still has feelings, but they're wholesome. Everything's wholesome. The mind has been purified of all the pollution. So they're still going to have certain feelings or certain thoughts, certain ideas, certain beneficial thoughts that they might have, but it's all going to be wholesome. It's not going to be based in the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. Their thoughts and their ideas, their feelings are all going to be based in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And because they're making decisions based on the three wholesome roots, they're very wise decisions, so everything that's coming back to them and that they're experiencing is going to be wholesome as well. A question from Rick. He writes, let's say I am a beginning meditator. Often I was taught to just focus on the breath and body. What happens if I am having strong thoughts and feelings and am aware of mind objects such as the five hindrances? Do I focus at all of these more advanced foundations of mindfulness? The five hindrances and the four foundations of mindfulness are, are different. The five hindrances are mental objects. But the right mindfulness that you're practicing is part of the four foundations of mindfulness. That's outside of your meditation practice. If discontentedness is arising in your meditation practice, then you're going to need to practice the four foundations of mindfulness there as well. But the way that I suggest you do breathing mindfulness meditation, Rick, is just focus on the breath. That focus on the breath is the single object. And then whenever the mind is off the breath, you cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Even though you've learned other things in other places, if you would like to see what the Buddha actually taught using his own words, you can see the words of the Buddha in volume 7 of the book series that I wrote. That book is a collection of the words of the Buddha and how he taught breathing mindfulness meditation. You can see that he taught to focus on the breath, and whenever the mind is off the breath, to cut it off and let it go. In the world, we see lots of different teachings around meditation and around the Buddhist teachings. But remember, he taught 2,500 years ago. And oftentimes what we see being shared in the world today because of impermanence is not what he actually taught. So the only way that you know and can have confidence in what he actually taught is to go back to his original words. So this book series consolidates the teachings around various topics so that you can very easily, instead of going through 45 volumes of books in the Pali Canon, you can just go to one book and see all the most important teachings that he shared about meditation, and that's volume seven. And then you can read that and you can see what he actually shared. But then even that, you don't believe it, you practice it. So if you focus on the breath and whenever the mind is off the breath, you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath, this is training the mind to let go because that's the number one problem with the mind is that it's having this craving desire attachment. That's number one problem in terms of what's causing discontentedness. Because craving desire attachment is the cause of discontentedness and this path is to eliminate discontentedness, the primary form of meditation that the Buddha taught is breathing mindfulness meditation. And when he taught it, he taught to focus on the breath, 
whenever the mind is off the breath, to cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Don't be thinking about other things. Don't be observing the thoughts. Don't label the thoughts. Don't try to analyze the thoughts. Don't try to figure things out in meditation. That's not what meditation is about. It's just purely training the mind to arise this mindfulness or awareness of mind, of just knowing that the mind is fixated on the breath, to arise this concentration or singleness of mind where it's fixed on the single object and it gets better and better at doing that, focusing on the breath. And then when the mind's off the breath, it gets better and better at cutting that off and letting it go and coming back to the breath. You're not trying to eliminate the thoughts in breathing mindfulness meditation. You're trying to develop the skill or the ability of having mindfulness or awareness of mind, the skill or ability to have singleness of mind or concentration, and the skill and ability to easily let go whenever the mind is longing or yearning, when it's off the breath, you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. So by training the mind in this way to cut off thoughts during meditation and bring the mind back to the breath, and then it's gonna wander again, cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. It's gonna do this wandering because it's a wild animal. Now in daily life, when you observe those bodily sensations arising, because of craving, desire, attachment, and there's this discontentedness that's coming into the mind, it's about to become a feeling, now you can easily cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation if you've done the work in meditation to just let go of the thoughts whenever the mind is off the breath. But it takes an accumulation of benefits of doing breathing mindfulness meditation in this way for a consistent long-term period of time that you develop that mindfulness, that concentration, and that you can easily let go of the thoughts. So even hearing these things of what the ideal path is, you're not going to be able to do it right away. But you won't ever be able to do it if you're sitting in meditation thinking about the five hindrances or any of these other things, if you're trying to label the thoughts, analyzing the thoughts and things like this. So just wherever the mind is off the breath, just really simple, cut it off, let it go, come back to the breath. Maybe you get three seconds or 10 seconds of peacefulness or stillness. The mind moves off the breath, you observe that, cut it off, let it go, come back to the breath. And as you're doing this, you'll get better and better at letting go even an enlightened being is going to have an occasional thought in meditation. They might get five or 10 minutes of complete peacefulness in the mind, but then there's going to be a thought, but they're going to notice it right away. And they're going to be able to cut it off and let it go right away and come back to the breath. Early in practice, the mind is bombarded with thoughts. You might only get a second or two of peacefulness before the mind moves off the breath, but then you cut that off and let it go. And then as you accumulate the benefits of doing this, over a consistent long-term period of time, the period of peacefulness that you get in meditation is gonna get elongated. And then outside of meditation, you'll get better and better at observing the bodily sensations and being able to easily cut that off and let that go. And then with a gradual training of the mind, with this gradual practice, you'll see this gradual progress that the mind will become more and more peaceful, not only in meditation, but outside of meditation as well. Well, uh, for one who is studying and learning the Eightfold Path uh, for the first time, is it okay to write these eight aspects of the Eightfold Path, maybe on a, on a paper or on a notebook, and try to revise them maybe daily? Is this how one starts 
studying and practicing the Eightfold Path? Yes. If I was you, I would work to learn this path inside, outside, backwards, forwards, left, right, up, down. Know it like the back of your hand because this is the path to enlightenment. So maybe every couple of days you revisit different steps. So maybe on Monday and Tuesday, you look at right view and right intention. Maybe Wednesday or Thursday, you look at right speech or right action and so forth and so on. You have to have this inner discipline where you're revisiting this eightfold path. It's not just a talk that you have once and then you move on, but instead you understanding that this is such a core and central teaching, you revisit it regularly. And when you're out in the world and you have a conversation that didn't go well, you come back home and you open up the book and you look at the five factors of well-spoken speech and you're like, ah, gently, I didn't speak gently, that's the problem. Let me work on that and get better at it. And then you go out the next day and you work better at applying the five factors of well-spoken speech and speaking gently. And then when you have difficulties and struggles, you can come home and you can consult the book and you can reach out to your teacher and get help as well. But you've got to do the work to bring these teachings into the mind. And that means you're going to have to revisit it because the unenlightened mind is what the Buddha called muddled. It's muddled because of this pollution. It's hard to remember things. But when you're doing your meditation and you're learning these teachings more and more and you start clearing out the pollution, it gets easier and easier to learn things and remember things. But early on, because your mind is more polluted and more muddled, it's going to be harder for you to remember these teachings. So you're going to need to constantly revisit these in order to arise them and cultivate this wisdom in the mind and now to be able to apply it in your life more and more. Many thanks, teacher, for your time and effort. That's all the questions we have. All right. Well, I would like to thank all of you for joining us in today's class. This Eightfold Path is really crucial for your development to get to enlightenment. It's right here at the very beginning of the book. This is the heart of the book, chapter three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way through to maybe you know, 11, 12, 13, around there. That's the real heart of the book. And these other teachings in the book are really important as well. But this is the real focal point of these teachings. And you're going to see me revisit this throughout our program at different times. And I'm going to be introducing this and reviewing this at different times. But you need to do work on your own because coming to class like this is to build up your understanding, build your wisdom, get access to the teacher to be able to ask questions. But then you need to be doing work at home as well outside of these classes. If this is all that you can do is come to class and show up to class, wonderful. That's better than nothing. But as you are able to apply time outside of class, meditating and reading the book and bringing these teachings into the mind, you're only going to see more and more results because it's the results of your decisions. It's your life, your decisions, and your results. And as you dedicate time to training the mind, you'll see the results of the discontentedness gradually diminish. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter six, which is the middle way. This is a very short chapter. So the Eightfold Path is a very meaty chapter. So not only do you have this week to study it, but next week with the middle way, it's a very short, very basic teaching. So it kind of gives you a couple of weeks to really get your arms around the Eightfold Path and 
the middle way because these two teachings are really connected. But what you're going to read in chapter 6 is very brief, just helping you to understand what the Buddha taught on the middle way. And then I'm going to be sharing that with you on Sunday in our class next week. And then this Wednesday is the first class of our four-part series where I'll be sharing Buddhist chanting and helping you to understand why somebody would be interested to do Buddhist chanting and how to do that. The way that we do Buddhist chanting is in the Pali language. So I'll be sharing with you the translations of those chants as well. It's not mystical, magical stuff. It's not prayer. It's not worship. It's none of that. What you'll find is that chanting can actually help you to get more benefits out of your meditation practice. So I'll explain that to you in detail as we start our four-part series on Buddhist chanting. And if you're not able to attend Wednesday's class, then of course you have the replay either on Facebook, YouTube, or the podcast. And as you listen to the replay, you can learn what it is that I taught in Wednesday's class. And if you're able to attend live, that's wonderful. I'll see you in Wednesday's class. Between now and then, have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Take care. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.